So what I'd like to reflect on in the talk this evening is, is around the theme of moving towards embodiment. Is this too loud for you? And in exploring this theme, I, I will actually again touch upon some ground that we've already covered, but hopefully knitting together some of that ground we've touched upon with, with some new themes also. So over the days together, we, we've really been exploring this teaching on establishing mindfulness. So, the teaching of the Satipatthanas and really recognizing how much this is the teaching that has been the basis of all, pretty much all forms of insight meditation, but of course is what primarily underpins contemporary mindfulness teaching. And when you look at this discourse in, in the way that it's presented, um, you know, there's a very clear sense of aspiration and direction in this discourse. You know, the, the Buddha speaks very clearly about this being a very direct path to liberation. And that liberation is, is through understanding. It, it's through understanding and it's through how the, the mind is changed through insight about how the mind is changed through understanding and how in the changing of the mind through understanding, through seeing through new eyes, um, new perspectives, there, there is a releasing, a falling away of that which really ties us to what seems like these perpetual cycles of distress be, being created and recreated over and over again. And so it, it, it is a useful area to explore how those understandings come into being. You know, we, we talk a lot about insight, and sometimes I think it's, it's such a sort of delicate word and a charged word and, you know, almost a word that we feel embarrassed to talk about, you know, because, you know, if somebody came and asked you, you know, what were your insights today, you know, you might freeze, you know, uh, you know, because we're not always sure what an insight looks like or, you know, how do we know if we've had one or, you know, what are the ones we're supposed to have and, uh, you know, so it becomes a little bit of a touchy subject, I, I think, for many people and sometimes we have this idea that insights are always going to be these sort of breakthrough moments, you know, these epiphany moments, which is, is actually rarely true for people. Actually, I think in this process of things falling away through understanding, this is often a very gentle, quiet maturing of understanding that we actually don't even know has occurred until we find ourselves going to some familiar situation that may have previously provoked all kinds of very habitual reactions and we suddenly find they're not there. Or that they've changed quite radically. You know, or that we actually see things anew. And this is absolutely not what I meant to be talking about. Um, uh, so, so to come back to the point, to, to come back to the point, I had no intention of going there whatsoever. But there you are. Uh, um, to come back to the point, when, what you have seen here over these days is the ways that we have so so strongly emphasize the focus focusing upon mindfulness of the body 
you know, and how much in this discourse it, it occupies such a, such a major piece. And we, we've actually even hardly touched upon mindfulness of the body, I might say. You know, in the early discourse, there are so many other ways of being mindful, of cultivating mindfulness of the body, you know, through contemplating the elements, through, you know, uh, charnel ground contemplations, you know, uh, which, you know, we don't go there much in teaching in the West. But anyway, um, but still, we have spent a lot of time contemplating the body. And even as we have moved on and begun to expand, our explorations and contemplations, you'll notice that we keep saying over and over again, you know, we don't leave the body behind. We never leave the body behind because, you know, this is, is, is our primary classroom. It's where we really do begin to establish some stillness, some calming, some steadiness, some ability to sustain attentiveness. Ability to sustain mindfulness. This is so crucial, I think, in this process of transformation, of not to have sort of episodic mindfulness, that capacity to sustain. So we keep coming back to that primary anchor, and you know, and and again, perhaps the reasons for that become so. I mean, when any of you who teach contemporary mindfulness will, you know, get asked the question many times by your students, you know, how on earth am I supposed to be so interested in my big toe? You know? Why am I spending so much time with my big toe? You know, and it, it it's a very valid question, you know, because we we really look is is this contemplation of the body as sort of end in itself? Do we think of it as being a forerunner or a prelude to, to the more important contemplations of the mind? And how is it actually implicated in the, in the development of, of understanding? When I think of this path, I, you know, the word embodiment is very important for me. It's something I reflect on a lot. You know what it means to be an embodied human being, you know? and and I think some of those those lessons we start to learn within mindfulness of the body. I think we see ourselves as kind of taking, uh, moving towards embodiment, moving towards embodiment, and embodiment I think can be understood in in a number of different ways. If we look at the dictionary definition of embodiment, it's defined as being the visible and tangible expression of a quality. The visible and tangible expression of a quality. And, you know, I I think we, we know what that looks like. You know, I think when you, you know, maybe reflect on many people who've inspired you in this life or people you admire, it's often because they really embody certain qualities, isn't it? You know, there's a kind of trustworthiness in it, a sort of reliability in it. It might be the embodiment of, you know, they really embody compassion. Or they, they really embody stillness, you know, or they really embody a sense of, of kindness. You know, we're, we're very aware that this is often what really moves us and touches us and inspires us. So this is one way of thinking about embodiment. In the path we're cultivating here, I think there's another way that we can think about embodiment as being a quality of alignment, 
quality of alignment, alignment between body, mind, heart, place or context within the present moment. It, when, when I think about embodiment here, there's a certain quality to my mind. It brings forth a certain uh, quality or a sense of integration or, or unification of, of body, mind, present moment experience. Now, it may not, you know, we may have glimpses of this, actually. You, you know, we may have genuine glimpses of that over these days, you know, where we really feel that sense of, of alignment and integration. And it has a certain taste, you know. It certainly has a taste of, of peace, you know. It, it has a, a, a taste of, of abiding. It has a taste of, of wakefulness, of, of nothing being kind of left out. And we also, I think, in our experience, have a very clear sense of, of what the opposite of embodiment is. You know, we, we know the moments easily, you know, where our mind is in one place and our body is in another. You know, we, we know the moments easily where we can feel so, so disconnected from the present moment or so dissociated from experience. You know, we, we know the, what it feels like to, to actually feel very, very fragmented, very fragmented, kind of all over the place. And we know often what leads to that, the ways that, you know, when we're lost in rumination or lost in preoccupation, how, you know, our mind is, is moving away from what is. You know, it's a dissociative process. Our mind, our attention is moving away from what is. You know, we see the many ways that we um, preference and, and are actually far more interested in our thoughts and our emotions and our moods and our psychological process. And we know that that very interest or that preferencing of that aspect, significant aspect of our experience, often has the effect of, of dissociating from the body, disconnecting from the body. And sometimes, you know, this lack of, this absence of embodiment is just experience, uh, experience as a sense of, of just being kind of lost. I think on, on a wider level, embodiment is, is also bigger and, and so is the territory of dissonance, you know, because I think of dissonance as being in many ways the opposite of embodiment. We can see the, ma the many ways, and I think often the very painful ways that are, are the way that we speak or the way that we act or the way that we're relating or thinking can feel very, very dissonant, very unaligned, very, very almost at times contradictory of the, the deepest values we hold and the deepest aspirations we have. You know, and it, you know, we, we see this, I, I think, as mindfulness teachers, you know, people become uh, really uh, even more acutely, painfully aware of this. You know, if you go and lead a class, you know, and, you know, you're talking to people about being mindful and grounded and easeful, and, and then you go home and, you, you know, you, you, you kind of flip out at your partner or shout at your kids, you know, and, uh, you know, or screaming in a traffic jam, you know, and, uh, you know, you think, ooh, you know, there's this disconnect here between, you know, what I value and aspire to and what's actually happening on the ground, and they can be very painful moments. 
I think what does become increasingly clear to us is that um, these moments of fragmentation, these moments of disconnection, these moments of disembodiment are the places often that reveal to us our, our most unconscious habitual patterns, the places where we go into automatic pilot, into automatic reactivity, and that these moments of disembodiment also have a taste. And I, I think they have a, a taste, really, of, of struggle and distress and pain. You know? And I, actually, this, this is where we're, asked, we're not asked to judge this. We're, we're actually really asked to, to learn from this and to learn actually what it is that moves us towards embodiment, to a present moment wakefulness. And I think that that movement towards a present moment wakefulness, wakefulness often really does ask for some really quite radical changes in how we preference experience and in the ways that we attend to present moment experience. I think if we, if we look at our, at our day today, or we look at a wider level at our life, we, we actually see we have two primary modes of perceiving and attending and sensing experience. And one of our primary modes is a visual mode what I sometimes call the, the ocular mode. And the other primary mode of perceiving and attending to experience is the conceptual mode. So we have the, the visual mode and the conceptual mode. Now, both of these modes of attending to experience have advantages and they have disadvantages. They have benefits and limitations, which I will talk about. We often use the word, you know, I, I look at things, I observe, I see things, I watch things. And at times this is quite intentional, isn't it? And at times our seeing of something, our watching of something, our observing of something is actually simply being triggered by whatever is the most predominant sight or or, um, you know, body sensation or, or, or mood. And we actually see at times our seeing can also be driven by moods, how we attend and what we, what we look at and what we observe is actually sometimes triggered by moods. You know, if, if there's a mood of anxiety, we can see how our seeing becomes almost a kind of hypervigilant type of watching, you know, if there's a, a mood of aversion, we can see how our seeing is really preferencing and shaping what it is that we, that we see. And so the seeing mode or the ocular mode is one of our primary modes of attending to experience, perceiving experience, and the other mode is the conceptual mode, we, what we think about what is brought to our sense doors. Uh, what we think about the sights, the sounds, the moods, the body sensations, the tastes. Um, and again, our, our, our conceptual mode is, is actually sometimes, um, you, you know, it it's, again can be triggered very strongly by moods. And, and sometimes we see that our attention is simply captured by the volume 
and the amount of thoughts that are going on that we often seem to live in a narrative. Hmm? So the I see or I watch or I observe or I look at things I think is a, is a, is a preliminary capacity that is quite intentionally and consciously developed in most meditative and most mindfulness trainings. We learn to observe. We learn to watch things. And there's, there's a definite value in this because in that learning to see something or watch something or observe something, we're being able to step back out of the eye of the storm, so to speak. Um, we're beginning to, to decenter, to disidentify from what is going on in here. You know, from what's going on in the body, what's going on in the mind. We're being able to step back from that and actually look at it. And in that being able to step back and look at something or observe something or watch something, we're creating almost, in a sense, a kind of protection, almost a sense of safety, actually. And because what is happening, that our capacity to turn towards what is going on and watch it, um, we actually turn some of this intensity or habitual nature of some of our psychological experience into an object of mindfulness. That's what we're doing. So we're turning it into an object of mindfulness. And this is actually protecting us from being overwhelmed. And also in that ability to step back, something else is happening because we, we're no longer in that stepping back, feeding or unconsciously reacting to the patterns that are there, which we do when we're really in the midst of them all. So there's, there's many benefits to developing this capacity to watch, this capacity to observe. Because, you know, that there's a greater sense that what has previously flooded us or overwhelmed us or being inaccessible, somehow we start to establish a relationship with all of this through the observing. It's almost as if we're establishing a kind of, you know, nonverbal mindful dialogue with the contents of experience. So, and in doing that, in that stepping back and watching and observing, we're actually laying many of the foundations for being able to investigate what's going on, being able to inquire into it, and possibly even to befriend that which has previously been perceived as being threatening or, or confusing. We know we can ask questions. What is the nature of this? What is the nature of this? How, am I, how is this being related to? So there's many advantages in, the, in this stepping back and through cultivating this capacity to observe, to watch. But there's also disadvantages to this. In my mind, anyway, maybe not in yours. We're, we're, we're stepping back from being entangled in experience, yet by its very nature, the stepping back and looking at something or watching something or observing something, there's also a certain distance being created. 
in that stepping back. I mean, some people think that this stepping back and observing is the be-all and end-all of mindfulness. You know? That's, they think, is, is the ultimate aim. I don't think it is. I think there are, there are disadvantages in, it, in that we're distancing ourselves to some extent from the immediacy of present moment experience. We have the sense of, I am doing the observing or the watching and the seeing, and there is the object that is being looked at. There is me, the watcher, or looking, and there is the that, or the you that is being observed. Now, that distancing is protective and helpfully so. Yet I, there's also a real possibility, and this is, this is not so easy to, to, to communicate, I think, but there's also a sense that the attention in the seeing in this mode is not qualitatively neutral. That there is no such thing as bare attention that attention, to some extent, is flavored by that which is being attended to. I don't believe that attention can be entirely independent from the object of attention. So some of you have experienced this in the practice, and it, it, it's come up in a couple of the groups, you know, that as you get more still and more calm, a lot of the sort of surface proliferation starts to calm down and, and to fall away. And, you know, there may even be spaces in some of that proliferation, you know. And then suddenly something pops up, you know, something that's been a bit more latent or a bit deeper, you know, some, some memory, hurtful memory from the past or, uh, you know, some awareness of some pattern. And, and boy, what pops up with that popping up is... You know, look at this, you know, look at this. And, you know, and, and almost automatically, you know, like this is now something to work on. You know, I've got to do something with this, you know. And how in, in that sense, even of that preferencing of that whatever has popped up, there's a, a, a subtle flavoring of the attention that gets expressed in that very phrase, this is now something to work on. So attention is not qualitatively neutral. Our, our seeing and attention can and often is subtly flavored uh, and textured by the object that is being seen. So in this, in this cultivation of mindfulness awareness that we've been engaging in, there's uh, clearly part of this is cultivating this capacity to bring intentional int attention into our experience. That's a very major first step, isn't it? That we actually learn to see things by choice. We attend to the moment intentionally rather than our attention simply, as it often previously has been, simply being captured by whatever is predominant. So in that scene intentionally, there is a unification that is happening because there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a, an alignment between our seeing capacity co-opting the, the mind into that seeing capacity and grounding it in the present moment and developing a spacious attentiveness that is still rooted in the body ra rather than the opposite of what happens when we start to contract around what is seeing. Okay? So we're shifting how we see, 
how we watch. So instead of actually just being captured, we cultivate choice, we cultivate intention that creates, uh, we, we begin to integrate mind and body and present moment experience. And there's, there's the, not the contracting around the object. We cultivate a seeing that is actually more imbued, as we've spoken about many times, with curiosity and interest space, rather than by knowing what we see. So, so that in that sense of curiosity, there's not so much that sort of staticness or, or rigidity about, I know what this is. You know, I know what I'm seeing. Because we very often see when seeing is filtered, when it's just captured by what is predominant, often our seeing or our knowing of what we see is being filtered through memory and past experience. So as you were cultivating mindfulness practice, a greater sense of not knowing, a greater sense of not knowing, not being so, so entranced by our views or by our conclusions, in a sense learning to see anew. And I'll read you a little, little story. This is something written by a man, Kochmil Goldman, when he was 92 years old. He says, I have a friend, a woman I already know many years. One day she's mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I've insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone I know you. People jump around. They're like a ball. Rubbery, they bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in, make a little hole. It goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This likewise you could do concerning yourself. All this I didn't read in any book. It's my own invention. I think with, with mindfulness, we're, we're not endeavoring to maintain dis distance, not to endeavoring to maintain the distance that is created in the seeing or watching mode as useful as it has initially been. What we're actually doing, we step back by developing the seeing capacity, but then we learn to step back into an experiential mode. We learn to step back into the body, into, into moods, into present moment experience, but with, with new eyes, in a more experiential mode. This is almost like a behavioral gesture of the mind. You know, how does, how does the body feel? How does the breathing feel? Do I listen to it? Do I listen to it from within? Do I sense from within rather than from this distance? You know? how, how, do, how do I know this sadness? 
you know how how does the sadness feel you know how does this frustration feel there's a sense of curiosity of exploration but without conclusion there's that sense of being taught by it's almost allowing something to tell us its story rather than us telling the story to the moment rather than us telling the story to the body or or to the present moment and we learn to this, this balance about not being the owner of experience through being identified with it not being lost or overwhelmed and not being dissociated from experience but to know and feel and to be present with this body of calm this body of sadness this this body of spaciousness and we actually see that, that there's something so dynamic and so alive in this a dynamism and an aliveness that is always suffocated and smothered by knowing and to some extent by distancing to some extent by distancing I want to read you I mean I'd love to read you this whole story but it, it's far too long but it there's something of a taste of this in in here um it's about a person who loses their sight through an accident it says it was a great surprise to me to find myself blind and being blind was not at all as i imagined it nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it they told me that to be blind meant not to see yet how was i to believe them not at once i admit not in the days immediately after the operation in that time i still wanted to use my eyes i followed their usual path i looked in the direction where i was in the habit of seeing before the accident and there was anguish a lack something like a void which filled me with what the grown-ups called despair finally one day and it was not long in coming i would realize i was looking in the wrong way it was as simple as that i was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves i was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things at this point some instinct i was almost about to say a hand laid on me made me change course i began to look more closely not at the things but as but at a world closer to myself looking from an inner place to one further within instead of clinging to the movement of sight to the world outside how could i have lived all that time without realizing that everything in the world has a voice and speaks not just the things that are supposed to speak but the others like the gate the walls of the houses the shade of the tree the sand and the silence still even before my accident i love sound but now it seems clear to me i didn't listen to it yet there was something still more important than movement and that was pressure if i put my hand on the table without pressing it i knew the table was there but knew nothing about it to find out my fingers had to bear down and the amazing thing is that the pressure was answered by the table at once being blind i thought i should have to go out and meet things but i found that they came 
to meet me instead. I've never had to go more than halfway, and the universe became the accomplice of all my wishes. You cannot keep your hands from loving what they have really felt, moving continually, bearing down, and finally detaching themselves, Perhaps the last perhaps, the most significant motion of all. Little by little, my hands discovered that objects were not rigidly bound within a mold. It was form they first came in contact with, form like a kernel, but around this kernel, objects branched out in all directions. I couldn't touch the pear tree in the garden just by following the trunk with my fingers, oh, then the branches and the leaves one at a time. That was only a beginning, for in the air between the leaves, the pear tree still continued and I had to move my hands from branch to branch to feel the currents running between them. There's much, sister, there's much about this sense of, of learning how, how to touch the world in a very new way, and how to be touched, not in the ways that we usually have through the familiarity of our interpretations and our views and our, our likes and our dislikes. In a way, the world actually does become new to us. The world actually does become new to us. Now, the second primary mode of, of perceiving and attending is a conceptual mode. And, you know, we, we are so familiar with this, isn't it? We tend to be narrative-based beings. That, and we have such a love-hate relationship with our, with our narratives, don't we? I mean, when they're pleasant, we just are so enchanted and infatuated. And we love our thoughts, you know. And, and when they're unpleasant, boy, we just hate them, you know. And we wish that they would stop and can't understand why, our, why we are so tormented by our own mind. And narrative holds this powerful magnetism, and so often we tend to live from the neck up in this kind of almost non-stop, it seems, commentary and story about everything. And the rest, of, the rest of our body from the next down seems to merit attention only when it's sending unmistakable messages of pain or pleasure. And the world is, is experienced and indeed filtered through the lens of those narratives, how we've experienced something before. We see the, the, the perception linking to memory and memory being imprinted with emotional association. You know, we see someone that's been hurtful 10 years ago and our, that sight moves right back into that place of pain and that injury. And our thoughts about who that person is and who I am in relationship to that person, that just glimmer of a sensation in the back and right away we're telling the story of another 10 years of back pain, even though we haven't had it for 10 years. We, we see the way our interpretations travel these very familiar and well-worn pathways, and that the past is recreated over and over again in the present. And in the past being recreated over and over again in the present, the present actually is recreating its future. It's laying the grounds for its future, which is actually going to bear this continuum right through from past experience, present moment experience, into future experience. And narrative is triggered you know, in so, so many ways. 
not only you know through contact with the sensory world, but narrative is really triggered by moods too, isn't it? I mean, we see especially more difficult moods, you know, uh, you know, sadness, you know, despair, frustration, uh, aversion, aversion. You know, it's almost like the difficulty of the mood is almost the intensity of the narrative, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when you have a lovely state of mind, there's not a whole lot of story about it, is there? You know, you don't sit there fretting about why you're calm. You know, but difficult moods, they trigger the big, long stories. So convincing, so convincing. And the Buddha was so clear about this and saying what we frequently think about and dwell up, we dwell upon. And what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. This is a very sobering teaching that what we frequently think about, we dwell upon. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind, and the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. I find this a remarkable teaching. And it goes on to say, what we frequently think about and dwell upon, to this does the mind incline. If we frequently think about and dwell upon anxiety or aversion or uh, insufficiency, to this will our mind incline. If we frequently think about and dwell upon metta, compassion, generosity, to this will our mind incline. And it's really to sense how these possibilities are held within every moment when we are truly present, every moment when there is this integration, when there is this integration of body-mind present moment, when there is a sense of embodiment, this is where that choice begins to open up about what we frequently think about. You know, until we lose interest in thinking about and dwelling upon that which undermines our well-being. We get really tired of volunteering for suffering. You know, and some of you have spoken about that this here, you know, seeing your minds going down these really well-traveled pathways, being down 5,000 times before, nothing more to learn there, and actually realizing, I should don't need to do this. But we only have the freedom to not do this through developing that inner sense of collectedness and wakefulness. As we, I think, begin to cultivate the, the path of mindfulness and wakefulness, I think we appreciate both the invitation and the challenge of moving towards a more embodied way of being, not governed by automatic reactivity, learning to release some of those filters that keep us really bound to a sense of knowing rather than understanding. Um, and, and we become how aware, even in these first steps of moving towards embodiment, of actually inhabiting the body, how, you know, how challenging that is, and often for very strong reasons. You know, if you live with chronic pain or illness, you know, the body doesn't feel like a safe place to be. You know, if, if you live with, uh, if you have abuse histories, the body does not feel like a safe place to be. Or even if you've just grown up, you know, in a world where, you know, you've been judged a lot or judged yourself a lot around appearance, the body doesn't feel invitational. 
you know. And so there's so much, I think, even to get past, even just to begin to have a sense of this being a refuge and a play, an embarkation point for deep learning, for very deep learning. For most of us, the journey towards embodiment, I think, is a journey through some all too familiar obstructive patterns. And, and I, I, you know, I really feel that you know, some lists we need to memorize. You know, we just do, you know. It, it, it's like, how many of you here can name the five hindrances? That was a question. <laughs> we need to be able to name them. We need to be able to name them because these are the patterns that are the primary saboteurs of intentionality, our primary dissociative patterns, are the primary ways that lead us to get lost in confusion. And they're not just personal, they are very universal patterns. This is what we do when we don't know how to do anything else. <coughs> Many of you do know this list. Essential craving accounts for most of our distractedness in a most of our distractedness. We want something better than what we have right now. Hmm? Aversion. Made a few visits there, no doubt. You know, that whole spectrum. Um, uh, restlessness and worry. Hmm? We know that one. Hmm? Numbness and dullness. You've probably made a few visits there. You know, and doubt. You know, these are these are the five patterns. You know, if you look at they're the center of every psychological emotional storm. They catch us over and over again, and they they sabotage intentionality and they lead us to be lost. And they're one of the major obstructive patterns, in 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 terms of beginning to understand embodiment. This is this is a list. This, this is a list you should learn. It's a great relief in a way, almost. You know. Okay, I know what that feels like. I know where that takes me. Ah, you again, hello, you know. How are you doing? You know, restlessness and worry again. Here you are, in another appearance, you know. Uh, to, to begin to know these, to, to have a list of them, because these are the powerful habits of disconnection and the powerful triggers for, for forgetfulness. This is where we, we move through these patterns. We don't dismiss them. We move through these patterns, through being able to know them, to explore them, to be intimate with them. And we're moving towards this body. The Buddha says so much about mindfulness of body and the freedom that comes. It says, when established in mindfulness of the body, Mara can find no foothold in the mind. And Mara is very much composed of these five patterns. When fully established in mindfulness of the body, Mara can find no foothold in the mind. And he goes on to speak of the benefits of mindfulness of the body. He says, when mindfulness of the body is repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle for understanding, one becomes a conqueror of discontent and infatuation. One becomes a conqueror of discontent and infatuation. No longer overwhelmed by fear and dread. That one learns equanimity to stand in the middle of all things with poise and patience. 
Through mindfulness of the body, we have a clear access to happiness, to peace, to calmness, to balance. When mindfulness of the body is established, we have a clear understanding of the mind of the moment, and we come to know deliverance and liberation of the mind. I think these are very powerful statements, but the benefits of mindfulness of the body, I think, are not so remote or not so distant for us. I think we know in our own experience with some immediacy the benefits of stepping into the felt sense of embodied experience. When we do this, we step out of the storms of narrative and fabrication to know the body as the body. We step out of contractedness born of identification and clinging to know the body as the body. We step out of rumination about the past and preoccupation or apprehension about the future into the felt sense of the body, which is always a present moment experience. We step out of the compulsions of agitation and craving to know the body as the body in this moment. And I think in doing that, every time we do this, there's something of a taste of freedom. There's something of a taste of freedom. In the early teachings, the Buddha very much encourages us to contemplate the body internally and to contemplate the body externally. And I think initially this, this sounds very, very strange because it's certainly not an encouragement to dissociate and it's not an encouragement in any way to diminish or dismiss our, the personal story of this body. But it's beginning to look beneath the story of I am. You know, that leads me to think of my body, your body, myself, you, my mind, your mind. It's really an encouragement to begin to step out of that, that story of I and you into much more, the, the universal story. And it's really an encouragement to really align ourselves within much of the, the many of the themes that run through this universal story because this is where our freedom lies. What do we learn? Well, the body is certainly a process, not a thing. It is changing, fluid, appearing, fading, arising, passing. You know, change is written into the fabric of this body as it's written into the fabric of all things. And intellectually, we know this, but we have so many arguments with it. And, you know, the arguments we have with change are so, so much at the root of so much of the distress that we experience. You know, this should, shouldn't be happening. Something else should be happening. I want this to stay the same. I want this to go away. I want me to become something different. I want you to become something different. There are so many implications and, and much of our arguments with, with the body internally are the same arguments we have with body, all forms externally. Learning to, what we really see is, is, is really embodying understanding, embodying this understanding of change. It has so many implications because it just makes a mockery of grasping and clinging. And grasping and clinging are the self-builders. 
the I am builders. But when we truly see the fluid nature of all things, you know, it doesn't make any sense, does it? To try and make something stand still in the way we think it should be or I want it to be. We begin, begin to get a glimpse of aligning ourselves with this process nature and all things. And we, I think in doing that there is a, a taste of peace. There is a taste of freedom. And the instructions and the teachings of mindfulness are just so simple, you know. Come back to the body as it is just now. This pain, this sadness, this pleasure, this joy, as it is just now. Not, not in the narrative of how I want it to be or how I think it should be. How it is just now. Happening right now. And in that we're beginning to sever those links between what we've talked about today, the, you know, the links between what is and our reaction to them. We're beginning to find that steadiness of mind and learning how, how to step into the body is also stepping into, into a way of being that is informed by understanding, that is really aligned with life as it is, aligned with all things, just as they are. It's not about being indifferent or uncaring. That's another dimension of dissociation. But it's about discovering that responsiveness that, that arises when no longer governed by reactivity. The responsiveness to care, the responsiveness of compassion, the capacity for creativity, the capacity to see anew. I think what we need to remember as we practice here that we're really not concerned with a kind of future embodiment. But what, what it really means in this moment for us to step back and step into. And in that, discover that, that aliveness, that full aliveness of, of being you know, a creative, embodied, caring human being. 